Welcome to the Baptist Health Talk Doc to Doc podcast, a conversation for physicians by physicians, providing insight on the latest in medical practice, research, technology, and innovation in healthcare. Join Baptist Health experts as they offer practical advice for clinicians covering a wide range of specialties. Cancer, neuroscience, orthopedics, and cardiovascular care are just some of the timely discussions you'll find right here on the Doc to Doc podcast. Hello, I'm Dr. John Diaz, and I'm the Chief of Gynecological Oncology here at the Miami Cancer Institute. And I'm Star Mountner, Breast Surgical Oncologist at Miami Cancer Institute. And today we're going to do a Doc to Doc podcast, and we're going to be discussing women's health. So Dr. Mountner, thanks so much for making the time to join us on the Doc to Doc. Um, in your day-to-day practice, if there is something you could communicate to our community physicians as far as how best to get patients ready for their first visit with you, what is some advice that you would give to our community practitioners? Sure. Thank you for having me on the podcast today. So I think uh, in my everyday practice, I primarily see women who are either newly diagnosed with breast cancer or have abnormal breast imaging that may have led to a biopsy um, for something that becomes a surgical lesion of the breast, whether it's a benign lesion or a malignant lesion. Um, And so oftentimes the referral process to the breast surgical oncologist involves having the patient's imaging sent over so that it can be reviewed ahead of time to make the most out of that consultation and making sure that the patient is well informed of the reason why they are going to be referred to the breast surgical oncologist ahead of time so they can be prepared with their questions. And Dr. Montner, do all patients need a biopsy before they see a breast surgeon like you? And if not, when should they have a biopsy before seeing you? Sure. Um, So not all patients have an actual diagnosis before coming in. Um, I would say that a majority of patients do um, because by the time they reach me, they've been diagnosed with something that needs to be addressed, whether it be benign or malignant. Um, But there are times when either a patient has abnormal imaging and they're hesitant to undergo the biopsy ahead of time and want to speak to a breast specialist before undergoing that biopsy um, versus a biopsy is not necessarily being recommended because the imaging keeps coming back as normal, but yet the patient has a concern that hasn't been fully worked up and addressed. There are times when the patient either has um, a palpable mass that's being read out as normal on imaging or maybe some skin changes or nipple discharge um, that's still being read out as normal on imaging, but the actual issue hasn't been fully addressed. And so not everyone comes in with an actual diagnosis before they are seen. And start. I know we have a breast clinic here for those patients who maybe don't require at that time to be seen by a breast surgeon as yourself. Tell us a little bit more about that breast clinic and when should they refer maybe to our breast clinic to undergo uh, either image-guided ultrasound or further elevation before having to see a breast surgeon? Exactly. So um, in order to make sure that a patient is appropriately referred, we actually have several clinics here at Miami Cancer Institute um, for different types of patients. And the, the clinic that you're referring to is the benign breast clinic. And so not all women need to be seen by a surgical oncologist because primarily the women that I'm seeing usually need some sort of um, operation. Um, But there are many women that don't require surgery and have benign breast lesions. And these are patients that may have benign breast cysts um, that they have concerns about or patients that potentially have breast pain but have normal breast imaging. 
Um, and so these patients can be referred to the benign breast clinic for further evaluation. And then of course, if something comes up that's actually surgical, they then get sent to a breast surgeon like me. Um, currently this clinic is being run by Dr. Bob Derhagopian and one of his nurse practitioners. Um, and they're seeing patients weekly in the office at Miami Cancer Institute that have benign breast lesions. Um, an additional type of patient that may be referred to them is someone who has indeterminate imaging. And so when your patients um, are undergoing their screening mammograms, the radiologist will score the mammogram with a BIRADS scoring system. And so someone who has a BIRADS one or two has completely benign imaging that usually needs no further workup. Um, but someone with a BIRADS three has indeterminate imaging that requires a six month follow-up evaluation to make sure that the finding is actually stable and not changing. Um, a lot of patients, when they see this type of report read out, have concerns because it says probably benign and not actually benign. Um, and so those types of patients, if they have concerns and are not comfortable just following up in six months with imaging, are appropriate referrals to the benign breast clinic. Someone with a BIREDS 4 or 5 imaging study would be considered suspicious or very suspicious, and they either require a biopsy prior to referral or a referral for us to um, then perform the biopsy and further workup. Dr. Mottner, you mentioned imaging. So can you talk a little bit about what are some of the imaging modalities that we offer here at Miami Cancer Institute that might help in either breast cancer screening uh, or in assisting with making that diagnosis in those challenging um, screening mammographies? So we know that all women over the age of 40 should be undergoing an annual screening mammogram. The technology that we have available at Baptist, and we have several sites that are not necessarily within the Cancer Institute, but at the Baptist Outpatient Centers where women undergo their screening mammograms yearly, include 3D tomosynthesis mammograms. And so these are digital mammograms that take extra pictures and views of the breast and increase the sensitivity of the screening. So most women that are undergoing a diagnostic study for workup of um, a breast mass are actually getting a 3D mammogram, and all other women are getting a 2D digital mammogram for screening. In addition to just the standard mammogram, women who have dense breast tissue, we always advise to undergo at least a, a breast ultrasound in addition to the mammogram. Um, so if someone has very fatty tissue, it's not always necessary to have the ultrasound on top of the mammogram, but someone with dense tissue does need that ultrasound. And then in addition to that, we also have breast MRI. Um, I get a lot of questions about breast MRI. It's definitely not for every single patient. Um, we have to use it very selectively. And so breast MRI is very useful in a woman who either has extremely dense breast tissue where their mammogram sensitivity is going to be lower, um, or someone who's considered a high-risk patient, has a family history of breast cancer, has a personal history of breast atypia or several biopsies in the past. And those types of women that have an over, uh, the over than 20% lifetime risk of developing breast cancer are considered higher risk and would qualify for breast MRI. Um, in addition to that, we have a high-risk clinic that's run by Dr. Anna Sandoval. She's one of our medical oncologists, and she runs a clinic for women that are at high risk for breast cancer. So if you're unsure whether or not to order the MRI for your patient who has a family history of breast cancer, one way to get her hooked into the system is to refer her to our high-risk clinic, and then we'll order the MRI for her. You mentioned something I want to follow up on. You mentioned that all women over 40 recommend initiating breast cancer screening. What do we do with women that are under 40? Right. Most women under the age of 40 won't qualify for a screening mammogram unless they have extremely strong families histories or a BRCA genetic mutation putting them at risk for breast cancer at an earlier age. That being said, if a woman under the age of 40 comes in with a palpable mass or breast concern, absolutely order the MRI and order the ultrasound to work it up. 
If a woman under 40 is just coming in for her annual exam, has no complaints, has a normal clinical breast exam, then I think the most important thing to do at that point is just making sure that she's comfortable knowing how to examine her own breasts with self-breast exams so that if something were to um, pop up you know, on a monthly exam, she would be comfortable to say, I think this is new and it needs attention and needs further workup. Unfortunately, in my practice, I've been seeing a number of very young women in their 20s and 30s being diagnosed with breast cancer, and these numbers appear to be increasing. Um, and so it always concerns me that sometimes patients aren't being taken seriously because they're under the age of 40 if they're presenting with a breast mass. And these women, even though they're young, really need to be taken seriously. Don't hesitate to order breast imaging and to refer if you think something might be wrong. You mentioned family history and trying to identify these high-risk women what kind of rule of thumb can you give the primary care doctor, the internist, or the OBGYN that's seeing these women and trying to determine who they should or shouldn't offer genetic testing to? And then is this something they should do, or are there resources for them here at MCI to help make this determination? Right. So there, there are guidelines that are put out by the American Society of Breast Surgeons, the American Cancer Society, of who does qualify for genetic testing. But essentially, if you're seeing a woman who is of Ashkenazi Jewish heritage um, or has a significant family history of breast or ovarian cancer or other cancers in the family like uterine or colon cancer, um, they may qualify for genetic testing. In general, having a genetic mutation is very rare. However, in certain populations, especially Ashkenazi Jewish women, it's a one in 40 chance of carrying a BRCA genetic mutation. And so those women should definitely be offered screening. Um, a lot of the gynecologists in the community do have the ability to order genetic testing through some companies. Um, but if it's unclear or if you don't have the resources to do that, we actually do have genetic counselors here at Miami Cancer Institute that can not only order the testing, but they usually have a consultation with the patient ahead of time to discuss which test is most appropriate, will insurance cover it, and what are the implications of testing? Because to just order the test and send it off may have many implications that the patient may not be aware of, such as if it returns with a mutation, what do they do with that information? Um, it could have implications in terms of the ability to get life insurance in the future if they have a genetic mutation. And so a lot of things need to be taken into consideration before that testing is actually ordered and sent. Um, but in general, for patients, it's a very easy test to do. It can be done via saliva or via blood. Um, and they just need to be aware of what the implications would be because now we test for more than just, you know, four or five genes. We're testing for panels of up to 80 genes um, for these patients that qualify. And Dr. Montner, just one more thing that you mentioned was on breast self-exam. A lot of times when patients are doing these self-exams, they may find uh, something on the breast skin that might be worrisome. Uh, and it can be difficult for the physician who sees them once a year for their woman to really evaluate these skin lesions. Uh, is it something worrisome? Is it just a freckle? You know, what suggestions can you give um, to physicians who are seeing these women and they're finding these, you know, irregularities on the skin, um, when to refer or how to work this up? Absolutely. So I've been seeing this a lot lately. And so I would say if the skin lesion is a mole or appears to be a sebaceous cyst, that might be an appropriate referral to a dermatologist. Um, however, if there's significant discoloration to the nipple areolar complex or a rash on the breast that doesn't seem to be getting better, I've been seeing women that uh, appear to have what may be called a fungal rash at their inframammary crease at the fold there where you get some moisture, 
but they've been putting powder or desitin on it and it's just not getting better. Um, those are concerning findings or redness of the skin that is asymmetric on one side versus the other. And those are kinds of findings that we can work up in the office with a simple skin punch biopsy. Um, so in our office, it's very easy to sample a piece of the skin and rule out something like Paget's disease of the nipple or an inflammatory breast cancer. I would say the very first step is making sure that your patient is up to date on their breast imaging because you know, I can see a patient in their 50s or 60s that are coming in with this weird skin lesion that's been festering for over several months. And the first thing I'll say is, when was your last mammogram? And some of these women haven't had a mammogram in over a year. So the first step is going to be, is there an underlying lesion that's now presenting itself through the skin? So as a primary care physician or gynecologist, I think making sure that these women have up-to-date imaging is very important. Um, and then not hesitating to refer to a surgeon if you think that a skin punch biopsy is going to be necessary to help make the diagnosis. I wouldn't treat a rash topically for over, I would say two to four weeks. And if it's not improving, send them immediately to the breast surgeon for a punch biopsy um, because something much uh, more serious could be going on. Thanks, that was really helpful. So Star, I appreciate your time. We covered a lot of uh, topics in breast health and breast cancer and a lot of the um, resources here at the Miami Cancer Institute. We're going to switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about ovarian cancer. And so I'll let you kind of uh, take over this Great. portion of the podcast. Thank you. And as you know, we have a lot of overlap in our patients. So a lot of patients that have breast issues may also have gynecologic issues, um, may have genetic mutations that put them at risk for both breast and ovarian cancer or other gynecologic malignancies. Um, so tell us the latest. I know that you're heavily involved in robotic surgery. Um, tell us in terms of um, ovarian cancer surgery and uh, cervical cancer, what are the latest techniques with robotics and what kind of advances have we seen here at MCI because of that? Yeah, so ovarian cancer uh, continues to be a disease that we see a fair amount here at the Maine Cancer Institute. As you know, we have a very high Oscar Jewish population in South Florida, uh, and actually Hispanic women, as you know, are increased risk of carrying BRCA mutations. And so we see a fair amount of ovarian cancer. Ovarian cancer, uh, although not the most common gynecologic malignancy, is the one that does result in the most number of deaths each year. Uh, and that's in part because we have a difficult time identifying an ovarian cancer early. Uh, unfortunately, there's no effective screening for ovarian cancer. So a lot of times we think a GYN ultrasound or my patients call the blood test, you know, the C125. Um, we do these things, but it's never been demonstrated to be of benefit and never been demonstrated to actually be able to identify an ovarian cancer early when it's treatable and potentially curable. So 85% of women, as you know, present with an advanced stage. And it's so important that these women are treated in a multidisciplinary approach uh, with a maximal surgical effort. The goal of surgery for ovarian cancer is to be able to remove all of the visible cancer uh, in order to give them the best response. Um, and that really requires not only a skilled uh, gynecologic oncology surgeon, oftentimes we collaborate with the colorectal surgeons, the surgical oncologists, and the thoracic surgeons. And it really is a team approach. And that's one of the benefits of being at a major institution is we have this seamless collaboration with our colleagues in other surgical disciplines to really make sure that we get the maximal surgical effort at the time of surgery. Unfortunately, not everyone is able to get an optimal side reduction. And in those women that we feel we're not going to be able to resect all the disease, or in those women who perhaps the surgery is going to be 
too tough. Maybe you have an eight-year-old that's going to require a partial liver resection and two bowel resections and diaphragm stripping. That might not be the most appropriate surgery for that woman. And so each patient has to be carefully evaluated on a case-by-case basis. And for those women who are not candidates for an upfront surgical approach, they get triaged neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And what we often find here is after several cycles of chemotherapy, women have a tremendous response. And at that time, their surgical procedure can actually be performed via a minimally invasive approach. And so we have a pretty large cohort of patients that we've done robotic surgery for ovarian cancer and optimal side reduction. And again, we don't sacrifice the oncologic outcomes. The goal is still the same to get uh, all the disease out. Um, but because of our experience here, we're able to do that via a minimally approach. And that results in a quicker recovery for patients, less time in the hospital, less narcotic use, and their ability to start their chemotherapy after surgery earlier than those women who require a traditional open incision. Very interesting. And then but like the primary care providers and the gynecologists in the community, is it suggested that they're screening these women with like routine annual pelvic ultrasounds when they come in for their pap? Like who really needs a pelvic ultrasound annually, if anyone? Um, and is that a useful tool in picking up some of these ovarian cancers early, even though they are so rare? Yeah, it's really challenging. So um, a few months ago, they don't, they uh, presented their 10-year follow-up of a UK study looking at 400,000 women who underwent routine G1 ultrasounds and CA125s. And unfortunately, that study again demonstrated that routine screening for ovarian cancer was not effective. Um, as gynecologists, we've all become very comfortable performing ultrasounds. Many gynecologists have ultrasounds in their office and oftentimes will do an annual ultrasound to you know check things out. Um, and I don't think that's wrong. Um, and sometimes we do discover some things. The problem is, you know, we're looking for a needle in a haystack. And so we may find an abnormal cyst that turns out not to be something cancerous. Uh, and patients may sometimes need to undergo a surgical intervention uh, to prove otherwise. So I think, you know, I leave that with each provider to discuss with their patients what are the potential benefits of a routine or a screen annual ultrasound. And what are the potential downsides, uh, including, you know, resulting in additional intervention um, for what is likely a benign etiology. But once they do find a worrisome cyst uh, and you do some initial markers and you have an elevated C125 in a postmenopausal patient, obviously that becomes a little bit more suspicious. And if you have other findings, ascites or fluid on your ultrasound, then we really want to get those patients in quickly, uh, do a further evaluation and determine, again, who's a candidate for surgery and who's a candidate to be triaged neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Yeah, very interesting. Um, I, I get a lot of questions from patients who are considering um, removing their ovaries, their postmenopausal, and maybe have an ovarian cyst, and they're just not sure whether they should do the total abdominal hysterectomy at the same time, you know, removing the uterus and the ovaries simultaneously. And what are the, some of the pros and cons of taking everything out, the total abdominal hysterectomy versus just the tubes and ovaries for a woman that's considering one versus the other, you know, when, what are some of the cons and drawbacks of doing that? Yeah. So you said abdominal hysterectomy. So again, we do most of our cases robotically, but yeah, that's still the, the nomenclature we all kind of grew up in through medical school. So we do very few procedures via an abdominal approach. And again, that really results in better outcomes for our patients. Um, we many years ago adopted the enhanced recovery after surgery for these patients. And so our patients undergoing a robotic hysterectomy go home the very same day. Uh, and this was really instrumental during the pandemic 
as you know, South Miami Hospital, where you and I do most of our surgeries, one of the few hospitals that really was able to maintain their surgical volume throughout the pandemic. And a large part of that for us was our um, already established recovery protocols where patients are going home that same day. We weren't utilizing beds in the hospital. We were able to continue to provide care for these patients. So I get that question a lot, um, you know, uh, be it a breast cancer patient who's trying to suppress their estrogen. And so they've been recommended by their medical oncologist to remove their ovaries, or as you said, where there's a finding of an ovarian cyst or an ovarian mass, and the recommendations are for surgery to move the ovary, you know, what to do about the uterus. So the uterus um, obviously is one of the reproductive organs that has the most common cancer in the developed world. So uterine cancer, endometrial cancer is the most common GYN cancer. There are about 66,000 cases a year in the United States. Risk factors for that are age. You know, we have an aging population. Another risk factor is obesity. Uh, we have a population that's becoming more obese. And there are other risk factors, so family history, um, and so those women who are considering surgery for an ovarian cyst and ovarian mass, the discussion comes up, what do I do about my uterus? And true that a postmenopausal patient, there's not really uh, any benefit per se of keeping the uterus. We're not thinking about future fertility, um, but it does add additional surgical time. Um, and there may be those some benefits. So when those women have increased risk of developing a uterine cancer, it may be a reasonable idea to discuss doing a hysterectomy to avoid that. Uh, women who maybe are younger but have other um, issues going on with their uterus, such as symptomatic fibroids or perhaps cervical dysplasia, you know, it may not be uh, unreasonable to consider hysterectomy at the time of removal of the ovary or an ovarian cyst. The other interesting point, though, is what to do about the fallopian tubes. And so we know that a lot of what used to be considered ovarian cancer actually begins in the fallopian tubes. And so there's this big push now for removal of the fallopian tubes at the time of surgery if women have completed childbearing. So if you're going to go in and have an appendectomy uh, and you're done having kids, do we remove your fallopian tubes, perform what's called an opportunistic salpingectomy? to decrease your risk of developing ovarian cancer, really fallopian tube cancer in the future. And so for women who are having a hysterectomy for benign reasons, fibroids and whatnot, I very much encourage those women to keep their ovaries because there's benefit to keeping your ovaries. That estrogen is good for women. Even postmenopausal patients, there's benefit until age 60 or 65 for cardiac health, bone health. As you know, the number one killer of women, it's not breast cancer, it's not ovarian cancer, it's heart disease. So there's a benefit to keeping your ovaries, but certainly uh, if you're going to have a hysterectomy, then removal of fallopian tubes will decrease your risk of an ovarian cancer, really a fallopian tube cancer in the future. And there's a national trial looking at women with increased risk, BRCA patients like the ones that you see, can we intervene before and remove their fallopian tubes, let them keep their ovaries for additional benefit of their hormones? Um, and does that have an impact on their ovarian cancer outcomes. So that's an ongoing trial. It's called the WISP trial. Uh, we hope to have some data in the next couple of years on that. All great information. Um, I have a lot of patients who are on um, estrogen suppression through either tamoxifen or aromatase inhibitor and have a lot of uh, sexual side effects of these medications, vaginal dryness, increased urinary tract infections. And so 
Fortunately, we now have a clinic for those patients that's run by one of our urologists, Dr. Christopher Gomez, who has been seeing these patients. Um, do you see a lot of overlap and do you see a lot of benign gynecologic disease, just like we have our benign breast clinic? Um, if someone has a benign gynecologic process, but it's just something more rare or their general gynecologist um, isn't comfortable in terms of dealing with it, um, is there a place for those patients at MCI? So we do have a benign gynecology clinic here. Um, we really limit that clinic to those patients who um, are within the MCI system and either don't have an outside gynecologist and would like to stay within the system. Um, but really, we encourage our patients to go back to their community GYNs. We're very fortunate in South Florida to have excellent uh, community gynecologists that we partner with. Um, as you know, within the Department of GYN Oncology, we're really focused on uh, surgical treatment for gynecologic disease, including benign disease like fibroids, um, and obviously our gynecologic cancers, and as well as administering chemotherapy for those cancers. That's where our focus is. So if there is a patient that comes from a community gynecologist, you know, we really try to get them back to their community gynecologist. However, for those patients that either elect to stay or let's say have moved from outside the state and haven't yet established care, there is a benign GYN clinic here um, where we try and focus on those benign issues. And as you know, we share a lot of our high-risk patients uh, with the benign breast clinic for screening for uh, endometrial or ovarian cancer, depending on which genetic predisposition. But we really try and encourage patients to return to their community GYNs uh, where they get great care here in South Florida. Great. Well, I think this was really good information. Um, one thing we didn't touch too much upon is um, tell us a little bit about HIPEC, something that we have very unique here at MCI that may not be offered out in the community for ovarian cancer patients. Yeah, so HIPEC, which is hyperthermic intraperitoneal chemotherapy, what it is is at the time of surgery, usually we do this for ovarian cancer surgery, but we also do it for other diseases, uh, appendiceal cancers, some select colon and gastric cancers, mesotheliomas. If we're able to get all the disease out, then at the time of that surgery, we give a chemotherapy bath where we bathe the peritoneal cavity with heated fluid. We also then inject chemotherapy into that bath for ovarian cancer. We use cisplatinum, and there was a randomized controlled trial from the Netherlands that demonstrated the benefit of this. And this circulates through the body for about 90 minutes. And we know that we have improved outcomes with ovarian cancer in the setting of HIPEC. So I've been fortunate to be um, performing this procedure since uh, 2012. Uh, we've um, shared our experience. We also had a randomized controlled trial, which was published in the JCO, looking at HIPEC in the management of recurrent ovarian cancer. So what was once experimental, now thanks to that New England Journal of Medicine article, is now part of the NCCN guidelines. And we have the greatest experience here in South Florida for HIPEC for ovarian cancer. So those patients who are appropriately selected um, at the time of surgery receive their chemotherapy bath, and we've seen the impact this has had on our patients. Thank you so much. I think that we covered a lot of topics related to breast cancer, benign breast disease, gynecologic malignancies, and I hope that this was helpful for our primary care physician colleagues and gynecologists in the community. Um, I know that John and I are usually very accessible to um, all of our referring sources, um, but we're happy to provide um, email address or contact information going forward so that patients have no issue getting into um, CR physicians. To find out more about the topics covered on the Doc to Doc podcast, please visit physicianresources.baptisthealth.net.